1970, and a murder investigation that would shock the nation. A baby found alive in a blood-stained farmhouse, her parents' bodies discovered days later weighted and dumped in the Waikato River. Neighbour Arthur Allen Thomas arrested and convicted after two trials. You don't give up when you know the man is innocent. Arthur's wife Vivian, who swore he was home with her, is suspected by police as the woman who fed the crew baby, a woman seen by another neighbour. Evidence from a farm labourer working on the farm opposite of the crew property told of a woman, and a passerby mentioned she'd seen a child on the crew property. Between the dates of the alleged shooting and the discovery of the disappearance, it was a case that attracted huge attention. Then a bombshell when a Royal Commission finds police planted evidence to convict Thomas. We have endorsed uh, a recommendation from the Minister of Justice that we should recommend to the Governor-General that he exercise the prerogative of mercy and pardon Arthur Allen Thomas for the conviction of murdering Harvey and Jeanette Prue. Released, compensated, but it took its toll on Arthur Allen Thomas. And Vivian divorced me while I was still in Parima, and that was the my hardest, the hardest times. Thomas exonerated, but the mystery remained: who fed the baby before the murder was discovered? Hi guys, thanks for joining us for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Unfortunately, today you're stuck with just me because Bill's got some personal stuff going on. And we just couldn't make it happen with both of us. So the show must go on and that's what I'm going to do. As many of you probably already know, we did decide to close our Patreon page. So our focus will now be on the main podcast. We did still want to continue to thank our Patreons that we haven't thanked yet just because they did support us for so long and we haven't had a chance to get through all of them yet. So before we begin, I'd like to say a big thank you to Katie, Julia, Mishimu, Kemley, Allison, Ems with a Z, Sharon, Marta, Hilda, and McCasey. So thank you guys so much for your support over the time that we had our Patreon page. We really do appreciate that. And with that out of the way, let's get on with this week's case. This week we're discussing another New Zealand case. And before we begin, I did just want to give a quick disclaimer. This week we're discussing another New Zealand case and before we begin I just wanted to say I have research pronunciation but I can't guarantee that I'm going to get everything right. I just know that I'm doing my best and that's all I can do. So this week we're discussing a well-known case in New Zealand which divided the small community in which it took place. In 1970 the Crew family consisted of David Harvey Crew known as Harvey to friends and family, Jeanette Lenore Crew, and their 18-month-old daughter, Rochelle. The family lived on a farm at Pukawa in Lower Waikato. Pukawa is a small farm town in South Auckland. It consists of one church, one general store, a town hall, and a small school with approximately 100 students, which was established in 1895. On the 22nd of June 1970, Jeanette's father heard from a neighbour of the couple that they had not answered their phone for a number of days. Jeanette's father was Leonard W. Demler, known as Len to friends and family, 
and he decided that he would go and check on the couple to see what was going on. When he arrived at their property, he found both the main gate and a smaller gate to the home shut. A number of milk bottles and newspapers, which were delivered daily to the couple's house, remained uncollected at the front gate. Len walked around to the back of the house and found the outside light on and the house key inside the lock of the back door. Now, this took place in the early 70s and in a small farming community, so it wasn't unusual to have the keys in the door and the doors unlocked. This was pretty normal for the area. When Len entered the home, he immediately noticed bloodstains on the kitchen floor and the lounge room carpet. According to reports, Len then continued on to search in the master bedroom of the house for any sign of Harvey and Jeanette, but he had no luck. When he entered his granddaughter Rochelle's room, he found that she was in the house and appeared very distressed in her cot. She smelt terrible and didn't appear to be able to stand up. At this stage, he did something that would cause suspicion to later be focused on him. He left his granddaughter in the home, reportedly because he panicked that the intruder may still be there. And obviously for most people, this is bizarre behaviour. The first thing most of us would want to do would be to get the baby out of the house. Len Demler went straight back to his own farm property and the first phone call he made was to a transport company that was supposed to be coming to the crew household to collect sheep from Harvey. So obviously instead of returning to get his granddaughter or calling the police to come and rescue her, that the first thing he did was call the transport company so that they wouldn't come to the crew residence. He then decided to go back to the crew's house and on the way he stopped to alert his fellow farmer, Owen Priest. Owen was working on his farm when he heard a car pull up and he looked up to see Len's red Cortina pull into the driveway. Len asked Owen to come with him to the crew's farm. He said, I don't know what the hell's happened up there, but there's a terrible bloody mess. Len didn't go into the specifics, so of course when Owen entered the crew's house and saw the bloodstains, he was shocked and unprepared. He would later recall Len stating, I want to know what's happened, but I don't want to find them. While Owen went on to search the house, Len reportedly stood by the back door saying repeatedly, the buggers killed her and done himself in. Owen reportedly replied, Look, Len, we don't know what's happened. It could be a third party. At this stage, Owen returned to his own home to phone the police while Len finally took baby Rochelle from the house and left her with family friend Barbara Willis. Before police could arrive, well-meaning neighbours heard of the disappearance and entered the crew home, potentially disturbing evidence. When police arrived at the crew farm, they were able to establish that it was likely that Harvey and Jeanette had disappeared on the 17th of June because the uncollected milk and newspapers on the property were there from the 17th onwards. One of the officers on scene, Inspector Bruce Hutton from the Auckland Criminal Investigation Branch, 
called in a forensic scientist from the New Zealand government's Department of Scientific and Industrial Research. This was before the discovery of the DNA testing that is used today. The scientist was able to find Harvey's blood type, rhesus-positive blood, and brain tissue on his favourite sitting chair. There was also rhesus-negative blood at the scene, which was Jeanette's blood type. The rhesus blood typing system is what was used back in the 1960s and 1970s before DNA. The scientists speculated that based on what he had seen, that the crews had been beaten to death with a piece of wood and then burnt in the fireplace. One of the most confusing things about this information was that according to a number of specialists, it appeared that Rochelle had been fed at some stage throughout the five days her parents were missing. While she did have some tissue loss indicating that it had been some time since she had eaten, she did appear to have had some fluids at the most 48 hours before she was found. She was obviously starving and had actually bitten the top of her cot as well as bitten her nappies in an attempt to feed herself. This seemed to indicate that whoever was implicated in the disappearance of the crews had come back to the scene of the crime to at least give the little girl some water. One of the first things police did was try to retrace what Harvey and Jeanette had done in the final 24 hours before they went missing. Len had seen the couple on the night of the 16th of June as he had attended a weekly family dinner at Jeanette and Harvey's. This had been a tradition since Jeanette's mother and Len's wife, Maisie, had passed away the previous February. Len recalled that they had enjoyed a meal of corned beef and onions. Unfortunately, according to reports, the food was the only enjoyable thing about the dinner. Conversation had apparently revolved around Maisie's will. There were some discussions taking place surrounding Maisie and Len's farm and who the farm was going to be left to after Maisie's death and we'll go into that a little bit more later. On the day of the disappearance, the 17th, a friend of Jeanette's popped around in the morning to bring over a gift for baby Rochelle. She was a local mother by the name of Thurl Pirrett, and she had stayed for morning tea that morning and then left at around 12pm. She would later say of the couple, quote, They were a very happy couple. I had morning tea with them. There was no element of any bad feeling. The atmosphere was very pleasant as far as I was concerned. At approximately 12.45pm, the crew family was seen at a local stock sale and based on witness sightings, they were there from approximately 12.45pm and still there at 3pm. Their car was seen at around 5pm by a neighbour of theirs down the road from their house. Although he didn't physically see Jeanette and Harvey, he assumed that they were doing some work down the back of their property. There was another sighting that became a hotly debated topic. The owners of a fish and chip shop in Pakekoe, Colin Massey and his son Richard, were sure that they had served Jeanette and Harvey the night they went missing. The men believed that Harvey had called the store at 6pm and ordered two flounders and chips and Jeanette had entered the store to pick them up. He even identified Jeanette from a photo. The woman reportedly told Richard that they had a long way to go, which he assumed to mean a long drive. 
because their car had been seen near their home at 5pm by a reputable source, this would mean that Jeanette and Harvey, if they were the ones seen at the fish and chip shop, would have to have driven all the way home from the stock sale, then driven the 30 kilometres to the fish and chip store, and then back again, which obviously doesn't really seem realistic. Oddly, it did seem as though the couple had eaten flounder for dinner that night, but there was evidence to suggest that they had actually prepared and cooked the flounder at their home, not bought it from a takeaway store. The fish and chip shop siding was eventually discounted from the investigation and police settled on the siding of the cruise car at 5pm, being the last sighting of them on the 17th of June, 1970. Baby Rochelle was examined by Dr Thomas Fox not long after she was recovered from the crew farm. He would later write about Rochelle, quote, She has been found by her maternal grandfather, Mr Demler, in her cot at 1330 hours on the 22nd of June, 1970. She was said to have been crying and whimpering as the grandfather approached the house, but to have stopped as he went to her cot side. Her eyes were said to have been sunken back. Willis, meaning Barbara Willis, the woman Len had turned Rochelle over to, said she was sitting on a blanket in the car, smelled bad, cold and shaking. Rochelle clung to her for two hours, sunken bloodshot eyes, frightened but didn't seem desperately ill. Nappy rash with blistering, she had probably lost approximately one kilogram. Dr. Fox noted that Rochelle probably hadn't been fed since around 2pm on the Saturday, which was almost two days after her parents were thought to have gone missing. Dr. Fox also thought that it was likely that her nappy hadn't been changed in around 48 hours rather than the five days. Unsurprisingly, the initial suspect was Jeanette's father, Len Demler. Not only had he seen them the night before the disappearance, and engaged in conversations about finances, but he was also the first one to enter the bloodstained home. If anyone had a motive to continue feeding Rochelle after Jeanette and Harvey disappeared, it was Len. After all, Rochelle was his granddaughter. So, back to the dynamics of the Demler family. Len was the patriarch, and his wife had been Maisie Constance Demler, known as May to friends and family. May and Len had married back in 1937 and taken possession of their farm. In Len and May's wills, the farm was to go into Jeanette and her sister Heather's name, making both of the Demler girls independently wealthy. In 1961, Len Demler was caught committing tax evasion and was fined £10,000. Because of this financial hit, Len was forced to sell half of his farm to his wealthy wife, May. He expected that he would eventually get it back, but when May passed away, he would have realised that Jeanette owned a high proportion of the property. In 1970, May Demler had passed away from a brain tumour, and it was initially thought that the financial implications of this could be a possible motive for the suspected murders of Jeanette and Harvey. In May's will, she had cut off her daughter Heather from receiving a proportion of the farm, leaving the biggest percentage to her daughter Jeanette. Now, the reason that she cut Heather off was because she had married a man that May didn't approve of. So as a result of this, 
Jeanette legally owned a large proportion of the farm that Len Demler had spent his whole life working on. And there was talk that Harvey Crew wanted to buy Len Demler's portion of the farm off him, leaving the couple with the full possession of the farm. The Monday before the murders, Len had gone to see his solicitor about May's share of the farm, and in retaliation, he drafted his own will, leaving two-thirds of his share to Heather and only one-third to Jeanette. So clearly there was some tension surrounding the farm after May died, and many people have stated that this would have to be the motive if Len was the killer. Len was the main suspect within two days of the disappearances, with Detective John Roberts stating, My opinion is that Demler killed the two of them. Aside from the money issues surrounding the family, suspicions focused on Len due to his failure to contact police when he stumbled across the crime scene, as well as his calm and flat affect following the disappearance of his daughter. Police obviously spoke to neighbours who lived nearby the crew farm to see if anybody had any information that could help with the investigation. According to a witness, farm labourer Bruce Roddick, he was out laying hay opposite the crew's house when he noticed a woman on the property on the 19th of June. Roddick described the woman he had seen on the property as 5'8", wearing slacks and with fair hair but not blonde. It was initially thought that this might match Jeanette's sister Heather's description, but it was later found out that this was not possible as Heather was confirmed to be in the US at the time. Knowing now that Jeanette was most likely dead on the 17th of June, it brings up the question of who this woman was. Was this the person who was potentially feeding baby Rochelle? It was also thought that the family dogs had been fed and probably overfed. This may have been to keep them quiet and prevent them from barking. When they were found, they were described as being as fat as seals. On the 18th of June, the suspected day after the disappearances, a neighbour on an adjoining farm to the crews noticed the crew's cow approaching him at the fence. The cows were making sounds as though they were hungry and wanting to be fed. In the days following this, before the crime scene was discovered, the cows appeared content as though they had been fed. If the killer was feeding the animals, it was speculated that this meant that he or she had the farmer mentality. So obviously making sure that the animals were fed as a farmer would. Another neighbour, Julie Priest, had heard three rifle shots go off quickly one after the other on the 17th of June, indicating that the couple may have been shot. A third neighbour, Queenie McConaughey, had driven past the property days after the murder when she saw a child who she believed to be Rochelle in the front paddock. It wasn't long after Jeanette and Harvey went missing that police zeroed in on Len and took him in for questioning. On the 24th of June, he was taken to the police station and the following day his house was turned upside down while police searched for anything linking him to the disappearance of his daughter and son-in-law. His clothing was taken for forensic analysis, as well as a wood-handled knife, which Len used to kill sheep. His Ford Cortina and May's Morris 1100 were also seized for forensic examination. 
Nothing else suspicious was found, despite police searching the house, garden, chicken pen, barn and wool shed. Detective Bruce Hutton again took Demler into the police station on the 26th of June, 1970. Hutton confronted him and told him that he believed that Len Demler was the one who killed the couple and removed their bodies from the farm. There is no evidence or record of Len Demler being cautioned or read his rights during this interview. The evidence against him was purely circumstantial and he strongly denied that he had anything to do with their disappearance or any knowledge of what had happened. On the 16th of August 1970, the body of Jeanette Harvey was found in the Waikato River wrapped in a quilt and bound in copper wire. Two men who were white baiting in the river saw her body fully clothed. One month later, the body of Harvey Crew was found snagged on some debris in the river. Harvey's body was badly decomposed. Police were unsure of the best way to recover him since he was snagged. When they began cutting away the snags, they realised his body was weighed down with a car axle. Both Jeanette and Harvey Crew appeared to have been shot with a twenty-two rifle. Jeanette's jaw was also severely broken and she had some teeth missing. Based on the injuries and the crime scene, it was thought that it was likely that Harvey was shot first while relaxing in his armchair and then the rifle was smashed into Jeanette's jaw before she was shot in the head. The killer had made a weak attempt to clean the blood as well as burning a rug and a cushion. Police were under a lot of pressure to solve this case, which was now a murder. The same detectives were also struggling to close the Jennifer Beard case, which we have covered, and the murder of a teenager in Rotorua, Olive Walker. They collect the majority of 22 rifles from the area and test fired them to try and match the bullet fragments to the ones that they had been able to extract from Jeanette's head. Of the 64 guns they seized, two could not be eliminated. One belonged to a local man, Arthur Allen Thomas, and the other one belonged to a local family, the Ayers. The lead police officer on the case was a controversial figure, and one we've already spoken about in the Urban Hoagland and Heidi Parkinen case, John Hughes. Hughes was an old school cop, and in the Hoagland and Parkinen case, appeared to make his preferred narrative fit around the evidence. He became fixated on Arthur Allen Thomas as a suspect, believing that he was infatuated with Jeanette Crewe. Arthur Allen Thomas was born in 1938 in Pukekawa and went to the local school, which is where he first came into contact with Jeanette. However, they were two years apart, with Arthur being 13 when he met an 11-year-old Jeanette. They did share a class in the higher grades because Arthur was held back. Arthur was pulled out of school by his family at around 14 years old to work on the farm, without pay, which was common for the time and location. Once he was an adult and could choose his own life path, he left the farm and became a ferry captain. Years later, when both were adults, Arthur Allen Thomas and Jeanette Crewe came back into contact around town. She was completing a traineeship to become a teacher at Ardmore's Teacher College near Auckland, where she graduated in 1958. Arthur and Jeanette didn't know each other well, 
but would say hello in passing, and at one point Arthur did ask her out. This connection would become the basis of the police theory that Arthur Allen Thomas was secretly obsessed with Jeanette Crewe. He asked her out in 1961 and kept the letters that she had sent him. However, he kept all the letters that other women he had dated had sent him too. He wasn't a man that struggled to find women to date. However, Jeanette wasn't particularly interested in dating him, and none of her co-workers from the time could remember her ever mentioning his name. For Christmas in 1961, Arthur sent Jeanette a card and a gift of beads and stockings. She wrote him a letter in return updating him on what she'd been up to. He sent another gift in 1962, which was a brush and comb set, and this would be what police would use to link Arthur to Jeanette after the disappearance. Nothing much came of any of this, and Arthur ended up marrying a young woman named Vivian Carter. Arthur and Vivian were farmers and leased one of Arthur's father's farms. Meanwhile, Jeanette was staying with a friend and teaching when she met Harvey Crewe, and the pair married in 1966. Arthur and Vivian and Jeanette and Harvey all lived in the same farming district, approximately 15 kilometres away from each other. After the murders, in the August, a detective visited Arthur Allen Thomas to ask him about the brush and comb set they had found in the crew's home. It had been sitting on top of a wardrobe and had still been wrapped with the card attached, signed by Arthur. He gladly told them that he had sent it to her when they were both single, not realising that he was placing the spotlight upon himself. So now a motive had been developed by the investigators, which was that Arthur Allen Thomas was infatuated and obsessed with Jeanette, so now they just needed sufficient evidence to charge him. It was definitely helpful that he owned a twenty-two shotgun that couldn't be ruled out. In addition, the car axle used to weigh down Harvey's body actually did match a set of axles that were found on Arthur's property. Arthur and his father would state that the axle found attached to Harvey was taken from the property long ago, and they were not the last ones to handle it. Arthur's gun and ammunition were seized, and not long after, a recreation of the crime scene was conducted. Detectives believed that there was a spot in the yard of the crew's home that the killer could have stood to shoot Harvey as he sat in his armchair. With this knowledge, Detective Hutton decided that they would conduct a third search of the yard on the 27th of October, 1970, to see if they could find any new evidence. This time, they found a shell casing around the spot where they believed the killer had stood to shoot through the window, and it appeared to match the type of bullet that would have come from Arthur Allen Thomas's twenty-two rifle. So with that, he was arrested and charged with the murders of Harvey and Jeanette Crew. Arthur Allen Thomas was tried in 1971 for the murders, and the prosecution suggested that it was Arthur's wife Vivian that was seen at the Crew's home and who had fed baby Rochelle. The witnesses who had seen a woman on the property were sure that it wasn't Vivian that they had seen, and she was not charged as an accessory to murder. Arthur Allen Thomas defence counsel Paul Tem would later say of the case, quote, The defence of Thomas was obstructed at every turn by the police and the prosecution. 
All evidence that could have been used by the defence was held onto the, by the prosecution or incorrectly given. Witnesses in the defence's favour were never called on to give their evidence. The prosecution were able to throw about their theories as if they were facts and even though none of them actually connected Arthur to the murders. Arthur Allen Thomas was found guilty of the murders, but the conviction was later overturned and he was, re and he was granted a retrial where he was found guilty again in 1973. During Arthur's sentence, an industrial chemist, Jim Sprott, began looking into the shell casing gun evidence and he was actually able to prove definitively that the bullets that had killed Jeanette and Harvey had not come from the cartridge case that police had found in the crew's garden. Their key piece of evidence basically meant nothing. After spending nine years in jail, Arthur was pardoned after campaigns to free him led to the Governor-General recommending that Prime Minister Robert Muldoon release him. He was given compensation of 950000 New Zealand dollars, which obviously back in those days would have been a lot of money. A review of the wrongful conviction revealed that the shell casing, which was known as Exhibit 350, was actually planted by police, who at the time had possession of Arthur's rifle and ammunition. Despite these huge developments in the case, to this day it is still unknown who killed the crews. So let's look a little bit deeper into the evidence and theories behind this case. One aspect of the case that we haven't mentioned yet is that in the lead-up to the murders, there was some suspicious activity around the Crewe farm. In early 1969, Jeanette Crewe had been driving out of her driveway when she realised that her brakes weren't working. She realised after she stopped the car and examined it that her brake lines had actually been cut straight through. The Crewe farm actually opened up onto the main highway, so if she hadn't realised that the brakes were cut when she did, and she'd actually gotten the car out onto the highway, it's a very, very real possibility that it would have ended up in a fatal collision. Soon after her brake lines were cut, two arson attempts were made on the crew residence, with Rochelle's clothes being lit on fire. People often speculate whether these incidents in the lead-up to the murders were actually connected to the murders or not. One theory initially stated by Len Demler and later by a journalist, Pat Booth, of the Auckland Star, was that the crime was a murder-suicide. She actually believed that Jeanette Crewe was a battered woman. Her th and there actually was, uh, from what I've read, some evidence that Harvey was a violent husband. Her theory was that in one of his violent outbursts, Harvey Crewe broke Jeanette's jaw and knocked out some of her teeth, and in retaliation, she shot him. In this theory, she then calls her father, Len Demler, who comes over to help her clean up the mess and hide Harvey's body. So obviously, when Len Demler is suggesting the murder-suicide theory, he's not saying this part. This is Pat Booth that is saying this part, but Len Demler did think that it could be a murder-suicide. So in Pat Booth's theory, a couple of days after Len helps her hide Harvey's body, Jeanette kills herself out of guilt and then Len has to dispose of her body as well. So for this theory to make sense, we actually have to believe that Jeanette walked around for days with the horrific injuries to her jaw that Harvey had caused and then went completely against her maternal instincts and killed herself, leaving her daughter alone in the cot. 
And it was also unlikely that Jeanette would have been able to shoot herself at the angle in which the bullet had entered her head. So this theory wasn't particularly accepted by by police as far as I could see. Um, and also for the theory to be legitimate, the crews would have had to have access to a very similar twenty two rifle as both of them actually died of the rifle wounds, but none was ever found in their property or none was ever known to have been in their possession. So we've also mentioned that it is possible that Len may have been the killer with money and property being the motives. There's no doubt that his behaviour after the murders was very strange. He was uncooperative and difficult, but by all reports, his personality was like this regardless of what he had going on in his life. He was known to have pretty poor people skills, and in general, he was just a grumpy old farmer. In evidence against Len, he would be the suspect with the easiest access to the farm, he could easily access it from his own farm at the back of the crew property and he wouldn't have actually been seen driving in and out of the driveway. He was also dating a woman who it was suggested may have been the one feeding Rochelle. Len had made quite a concerning comment when the ground searches for Jeanette and Harvey were taking place. When police and locals were searching, Len actually said to them, quote, it's no good searching the ground, they're in the river. So this was either a really good guess or showed evidence of prior knowledge, but obviously it didn't really look good for Len in hindsight. Another piece of the story that we need to mention is that on Easter weekend of 1972, a man came forward named Sandy Fletcher. He had been whitebait fishing on the Waikato in June of 1970 when he came across two people, a male and a female, along with two horses and some farm dogs. The couple and the animals were standing on the river's edge and next to them were two big bundles. The pair was reportedly wearing typical farming wet weather gear and seemed to be surprised to see them. Both were older looking, at least over middle age, and they had said that they were getting rid of some rubbish. According to Fletcher, when he went to the police with this information, he was told if he did not forget the incident and shut up, he would find himself in serious trouble. Fletcher positively identified Len Demler as being this man. However, Len had a very similar appearance to many of the older farm men from the area, including Arthur Allen Thomas. Another theory is that police had it right in the first place, zeroing in on Arthur, but that they obviously did not conduct a fair investigation and therefore essentially screwed themselves over. There was certainly some evidence against Arthur, including the wheel axle and the similarities between the wire found wrapped around the bodies and the wire found on the Thomas farm. There was another suspect that hasn't actually been in the spotlight as much as Len Demler and Arthur Allen Thomas, and that is Mickey Ayers. You'll remember that we said that there were two guns that could not be excluded as murder weapons. One was Arthur Allen Thomas's gun, and the other belonged to the Ayers family. Mickey was a strong young man who was mute, but still capable of working, and he had actually worked for Harvey Crew, and the two had had some conflict in the past, with Harvey at one point actually throwing Mickey off the property in a violent rage. Mickey's mum claimed that he could not have been involved because he didn't leave the house at night without a family member, 
but we actually know this isn't true. Neighbours reported that Mickey was often out and about at night with his gun and he was once even discovered with his gun on a neighbour's front porch late at night. He was known to dislike Harvey Crew, but against this theory is the fact that Rochelle was fed and cared for. Would Mickey really care for a baby? And who was the woman seen on the farm? So these are the points that kind of come up that make it unlikely that Mickey was the killer. Sadly, at this point, the murder of Jeanette and Harvey Crew is likely to remain unsolved. Many of the key players have since passed away, including Len Demler, who has reportedly been ruled out in a review of the case in 2014. The review also confirmed that the key evidence of the prosecution in the original trial was fabricated. However, nobody was charged with this. This seems to be as far as the review got in solving the case, and unless new and compelling evidence comes out, we will never know what happened to the young couple. Our thoughts go out to the crew's friends and family, and in particular, Rochelle Crew. Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast, and until next time, please stay safe.